Thursday and Friday, April 26th and 27th at 6.30 at Community Bible Church in Beaufort. See you there. The Parish Church of St. Helena and Community Bible Church of Beaufort invite you to hear Dr. Tony Evans Thursday and Friday, April 26th and 27th at Community Bible Church, 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort. For more information, visit cbcofbeaufort.org. Good morning and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live. A live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free. 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome any specific questions or issues that you may be facing as you study the word of God. Uh, if you have a question, you can call us directly here. Uh, at locally, again, the number is 843-525-1859. We have people who listen through the internet, and the toll-free number is 877-WAGP980. Or a number of people every week, they email us uh, directly here into the studio. And if you'd like to do that this morning, you can. The email address is tbl, for the Bible line, at net. Anyway, and either however you'd like to reach us, we'd be happy to try to respond to your questions, and we'll do the best we can by the grace of God. Rick, as always, it's great to be here, and uh, it's a great opportunity to open God's Word this morning. It is indeed, Pastor, and I see the phone calls are already coming in. We always want to encourage our listeners to uh, uh, consider going on the air live. We give live callers preference, and uh, we've got a number of uh, uh, email questions that came in as well, so we're going to get to those in, in a second. Um, uh, did you have uh, one question that had come in from a foreign country? Um? A number of them came in. They're uh, posted up there in uh, your Bible line thing. And so, uh, and again, uh, what's uh, if you want to, when you call in, if you want to remain anonymous, certainly you can. Uh, some people just prefer to dictate their questions, and we're happy to receive them in that fashion. So, However, yeah, we, we had one that came in from overseas, and it's one of those closed countries to the gospel, and they listen to the Bible line weekly, and um, okay. so don't mention the country, and we'll go ahead and try to respond to it. All right. They write, uh, we're listening to your sermon series in Genesis, and just recently listened to the part where Noah cursed Canaan. If we understand correctly, Ham sinned by taking delight in exposing his father's sin to his brothers. We've noticed that there are a lot of uh, memoirs being published that frequently expose parental failure. Some of these are written by Christians. Wouldn't this be the same kind of sin? Uh, what about if a person talks to their brothers and sisters about their parents' problems? Is that the same thing? The bond between parent and child is considered sacred in uh, certain areas, uh, and that's the reason that I'm asking this question. It's really a great question, and it is true that uh, what Ham did was dishonoring to his father. Uh, he, he really uh, took a sense of enjoyment in advertising and promoting 
uh, Noah's uh, faults and sin, and and he should not have done that. And I don't think we should do it today as well. Uh, There are choices that we make that uh, certainly, um, you know, God holds us accountable for. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And because of Ham's sin, uh, there was some serious uh, implications on his own life because of what he chose to do. But, you know, when I I know it's very popular sometimes for people in their testimonies to talk about what wicked parents they had or or how their parents failed them. And uh, you need to be very careful when you do that. Um, I just, uh, you know, there's no perfect parents, obviously, in the world, but we need to be very careful not to speak disrespectfully dishonoring to our parents. God doesn't say uh, contingently obey and honor your parents only if they're great people. Uh, God doesn't put that kind of parameter on the commandment. And so there are some things that are just better left unsaid. And most people have parents who can at least, um, there's something in their life that, that is notable and worth speaking of. And even if uh, that was not true in your case, maybe it's just better to be silent. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, dramatics that have entered into the evangelical church. People don't want to hear some vanilla testimony of, oh, you know, at the age of five, I I became a Christian and I never slept with anybody and never got, you know, hung up on drugs or this or that. They, they want to hear the dramatic stuff. You know, I was a junkie and I robbed the first national bank and murdered three people and then the Lord found me. And uh, listen, it takes much more of God's uh, grace in some respects uh, to have the former testimony than the latter. Uh, people sometimes diminish uh, people who've been protected and sheltered. That That's a great testimony of the grace of God in and of itself, that God could keep someone from those kinds of faults and those kinds of sins because we all potentially have the same capacity to do just about anything you can think of. Anyway, it's a good question. I appreciate it and hope we'll be able to encourage you in the future there in that country in which you're serving Christ. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning. Um, I have a question for Pastor Brogy. I love listening to Pastor Brogy. I think you can't get any better of the word than you can from him. Um, but my question is, I've been listening to his series on Romans. And in the first sermon, um, you spoke about that there are no direct descendants of the apostles, which I know is absolutely true. However, in the second one, um, you referred to us having an apostleship. So I was a little bit confused. I think what you mean by that is just that we are to evangelize, but if you could kind of explain that to me and help me understand that, I would appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, Paul opens his epistle, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. Um, the word apostle, apostolos, that's used here, uh, it can be used in both a technical and a non-technical sense, and context determines. Uh, there are many translations in the world that, unlike English, we distinguish the non-technical with a different word. But in many languages of the world, uh, a technical and non-technical use of a word is translated with the same word, and the reader has to discern. And that's certainly true in the Greek New Testament. So let me see if I can illustrate it and explain what I'm trying to say. Um, It is true that there are no living apostles today uh, for a couple of reasons. One, to have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have seen the resurrected Lord. You had to have been hand-chosen by him. 
and you had to have had an audible conversation with the resurrected Lord. And uh, indeed, uh, if God had selected you, then there would be some evidences or proofs that you were truly selected by God. And Paul, of course, um, defends his apostleship in First and Second Corinthians. He asks a rhetorical question, for instance, in First Corinthians 9, Have I not seen the risen Lord? Uh, yes, I have, meaning that's one of the qualifications that I meet. Second uh, Corinthians um, chapter 12 and verse 12, he says, um, let me back it up in verse 11. I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. Some of the false teachers who had come into the church said, well, Paul's a, you know, he's not a real apostle. He's not one of the original 12. And, um, and they were actually false apostles. They claimed to be apostles and said Paul was not. And he spoke of that in Second um, Corinthians 11 when he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder because he says even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But Paul says, listen, there were some things that were true of me that were not true of them. He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul's argument here uh, that signs, wonders, and miracles uh, makes absolutely no sense if this was something that everyone could do today. I was talking to a man yesterday. He said, well, I know you don't believe in miracles. I said, I believe in miracles. I said, I just don't believe in miracles the way you believe in miracles. And I had to qualify my, my, my uh, terms there and that this respect, he, he, he thought that, you know, there are people who go around today and they can do the same things the apostles did. No, they can't. Uh, those are the signs of a true apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, God still does miracles. But he doesn't do them through individuals in the way he did in the first century because that was an authenticating sign, among other things, that that person had been hand-selected by the Lord God to serve as his official office in the official office of apostle. So that's the technical use of the word. It's kind of like the word deacon. Uh, the word deacon, diaconus, um, uh, diaconoi in the plural, is used in a technical and a non-technical sense. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for a deacon. And he lists a number of different things that uh, should be true for a person to serve in the office of deacon. Now, the word deacon just means a servant. Um, It's used in a non-technical sense when Jesus says, for instance, he that would be great among you, let him be the messenger of all. Let him be the servant of all. Um, That's the non-technical word of the word deacon non-technical sense of the word deacon. He's not talking about the office of deacon. He's talking about someone who is a servant. He that would be great among you, let him be the deacon of all, literally is what it says. Now, in many languages of the world, they just have one word for the office or for the activity or the action. Uh, And they translate it deacon. And the reader has to discern, well, is this technical or non-technical? So the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, and in context is everything. And so the word apostle can be used in the New Testament to refer to the office. It can be used to refer to the gift. There is the gift of apostle today that's distinctly different from the office of apostle, just like there was the office of prophecy in the Old Testament that is distinctly different from the gift of prophecy that the New Testament speaks of. 
Uh, an apostle, again, just means a sent one. And there were uh, people with the gifts of apostleship that were different from the office. And, and they're, they're basically seen today as church planners. Uh, those are the folks who go to some area where there's no witness for Christ and they're involved in evangelism and discipleship and <clears throat> they establish a New Testament church and once it's established and founded, they, they, they move on. Uh, they're, they're commissioned people who go and plant churches. That's the gift of apostleship that's at work. Uh, there's also the non-technical use of the term apostle that is used of every believer. And again, what's really interesting, and I I hope this isn't confusing to you, but just take, for instance, the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. There are 20 that are listed, 16 that are non-signed gifts. What's really interesting is that for the 16 non-signed gifts, and by non-signed gifts, I'm excluding the gift of tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, and miracles. And so there were some non-signed gifts, 16 of them in the New Testament. With each of the non-signed gifts in the New Testament, there's an accompanying responsibility that every Christian has. So, for instance, there's the gift of serving, but there's the responsibility that all of us are supposed to be servants. Uh, There's the gift of mercy that meets uh, the needs of people uh, that have physical challenges or sicknesses and things like that. But all of us are called to show mercy. Uh, there's the gift of evangelism, person who has a, a special ability to win people to Christ. And there's a certain passion and fervor in which to do that. But then there's the responsibility of every Christian to go and make converts or disciples of all peoples, to do the work of an evangelist. There's the gift of administration. There is the gift of teaching. But there's a responsibility to be an administrator. There's a responsibility to not just be organized, but also to teach the scriptures. Um, The writer of the Hebrews says, by this time you ought to be teachers. So there's technical and non-technical uses of offices and gifts throughout the New Testament. And so Paul will, a little bit later here in Romans, speak about the fact that uh, through whom we... And uh, he's speaking of himself and the church at Rome, and by extension and application, every born-again Christian who would read this book, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So there's a sense in which we too are sent ones, not in the official sense like Paul was, called as an apostle to serve in the office, but we're sent ones in the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a command that's not relegated just to 11 men. Uh, That's a command that's relegated to the whole church. Jesus said, I've appointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit. Every Christian is called to be involved in the process of winning people to Christ. I recognize God uses us in different capacities Uh, Some people are planting seeds, some people are harvesting the seeds, some are watering the seeds. They're used in different ways, but all of us in some way, shape, or form are to be engaged in the process of bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ as we pray, as we go, as we witness, as we testify of the great gospel of the Lord. So Paul uses the term three ways, and I didn't even mention the third way, Uh, in my series on Romans as of yet. Epaphroditus is called an apostle. Now, he's not one of the official apostles. He's not one of the 12. Matthias, of course, took Judas's place, nor is he Paul, who would be a 13th apostle. 
the James, the half-brother of Christ, is later dictated an apostle. Um, he would be the 14th. Uh, actually, he came before Paul. And some would see Barnabas as an apostle. Some would see him just as a sent one. So that maybe the 15th would be debated. Uh, so again, there is the office. There's the responsibility where Paul uses it a few verses later. And then there's the gift. So Epaphroditus is called an apostolos. He has the gift of apostleship as he's sent it to serve and minister in different churches in various locations. Anyway, I hope that's not too complicated, but hope, hopefully it's helpful to you. Let's go to our next question. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. And you can also email us at tbl at net. Again, those phone numbers are 525-1859 and uh, 877-924-7980. Okay, our next uh, caller says that uh, he recently became a believer, and this has made him think about how he and his wife should observe traditions regarding Easter and Christmas. Uh, They have two children, ages two and seven. He wants to be sure that his children will not be confused about the Easter bunny and other symbols of Christian holidays. His wife isn't sure she wants to stop the tradition of the Easter Bunny and some of the others. Uh, What do you recommend? Well, it's a good question. Obviously, uh, Easter is uh, a time that we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. Uh, The term Easter, interestingly enough, is actually not found in the Greek New Testament. There's actually only one English translation. I think it might be in the Geneva Bible as well. I'd have to check that. But one current-day English translation that's accessible to people in which the word Easter is found, and that is in the uh, King James Version. But they're actually translating the Greek word Pascha, Passover, in the book of Acts, when Paul says he wants to get to Jerusalem for Passover, the King James says for Easter. Uh, The term uh, is, again, a translation term. Some would say, well, it has pagan origins, and I think you can build a case for the fact that the word Easter has pagan origins. That doesn't mean that uh, today it's a pagan holiday. There are certainly pagan expressions of it. So for a lot of children growing up in America, uh, we have a serious problem. Uh, 35 years ago, approximately 80% of the children in America under the age of 12 on any given Sunday were in church. Even if their parents didn't go to church, they felt some kind of an obligation to go and to drop their children off. Unfortunately, in 2010, uh, the latest survey that I was able to read, the numbers were just reversed. Only about 20% of the children under the age of 12 are in church on any given Sunday. And that's really sad because uh, we're becoming more and more pagan. And so in essence, a lot of children are unaware about what the true meaning of Easter is. They think it's about the Easter bunny. And so um, that's unfortunate. And so our responsibility as Christians is to educate them. And in being all things to all men, I don't have any problems with uh, using some of the activities as a springboard. For instance, we had an Easter egg hunt on Sunday at Pickpocket Plantation. We, um, on Saturday at Pickpocket Plantation, the day before Easter. And uh, I was told this morning there were 771 children, over 1,600 people totally present. It was a huge turnout. Now, were we there just to uh, hunt Easter eggs? No, we're not. We were there to share the gospel. 
and hundreds of children and their parents, their unchurched parents, heard the plan of salvation. Uh, For the first time, I'm certain many of them, and I'm certain dozens of children ended up receiving Christ, and I'm sure some parents did as well. Um, God alone will knows those true conversions that took place, and usually time will tell, and we will see the fruit of it. But we took a um, a, a pagan tradition because uh, the the word estra actually was the name of from which um, if you if you look at the history of the word comes into English ultimately is Easter, but the word estra was actually a reference to a, a pagan fertility god, and so the rabbit became a symbol of fertility. And, uh, you know, so the Easter bunny had some pagan origins in it. Well, number one, we didn't have an Easter bunny there, but we had an egg hunt. And I actually took four eggs and I did a gospel presentation. One egg was, uh, was white. One egg was dark. One egg was red. One egg was black. One egg was gold. I actually had, so I had these different color eggs and gold stood for, for heaven. And we talked about it was a place where God wanted us to go. And then the dark colored egg represented our sin that we're all sinners and it separates us from God and keeps us from heaven. And the, the red egg uh, stood for the blood of Christ. And we talked about who he was uniquely as a person and what he came uh, to do when he left heaven and came to earth and, and why he rose from the dead and what it would have meant if he hadn't risen from the dead and why the resurrection is significant. And then we talked about the, the white egg that talks about how God can make us clean and pure and righteous in his sight and how that happens by faith. So we took a pagan holiday and turned it upside down. Really, that's what the Christians did in the early centuries with Christmas. Uh, December the 25th, uh, unlikely, is the day that Christ was born. Now, I've heard cases in both directions why some would say, actually, he was born on the 25th. Uh, We can say this with certainty, that no one can dogmatically say that he was born on the 25th. But we do know that that time frame, that week in the Roman calendar was a a week in which they would celebrate uh, some of their pagan practices and they would exchange gifts with one another. And in the history of the church, some Christians said, well, let's turn this pagan holiday upside down and celebrate the incarnation of Christ to preach the gospel. That's just smart. Uh, That's wise. Uh, That's contextualizing yourself in the culture without compromising truth. So there is a line there where you can cross, where you are are no longer, you know, you you don't compromise the message to make it palatable to the world. But you may use the context of the world in which you find yourself. That's what Paul talks about. He said, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the man with the law, I became like I was under the law. To the man without the law, like a man without under the law. The slave, I became like a slave. To the free man, I became like a free man. I became all things to all men that I might win some. So he contextualized himself in a given situation without compromising the message of truth or without becoming worldly in his behavior, or in his activity. There was a pastor here in South Carolina that has become extremely popular, and a lot would say, well, he's crossed the line in that uh, last year on Easter he did Highway to Hell as their opening song, which is, you know, by a devil worship group, and this year he did Running with the Devil. Um, It's highly debatable whether he even has the gospel. But lay that aside, that would be an example of crossing over into worldliness to quote-unquote reach the world. 
Uh, and so there, there are some lines and there are some characteristics that would um, be imprinted on a false teacher versus a true teacher of God's word. And if you want to know what those are, just read Second Peter 2 or the book of Jude. Uh, they, they're given over, for instance, to sensuality. And there's some stuff that's coming out that's absolutely shocking right now. Best-selling stuff in evangelical bookstores. For instance, books on sex that are absolutely disgusting and perverted in some of the things that they're espousing is absolutely natural and normal and things that men and women, husband and wife, ought to be able to do with one another. Uh, it's sad, but that's the mark of a false teacher. They're driven by sensuality. So we need to be really careful uh, in discerning, especially in the day in which we live. I think we had a related question uh, to our Easter egg hunt. So let's go to that one. I think I just saw it on the screen. It just came in. As a matter of fact, a a person did attend our Easter outreach at Pickpocket Plantation and was wondering why, uh, he writes, all your women look just like the world, wearing pants, short hair, revealing clothing, high-heeled shoes. Kind of muddy for high heel shoes out there, but uh, uh, do you not believe in modest uh, adorning of women? And if you do, what is your definition of modesty? Of course I do. And anyone who knows me and has heard me preach or teach as a pastor knows that I believe in modesty and teach modesty. Uh, the Word of God teaches modesty. He says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. That's what God's Word says. But, yeah, we had... Um, you know, approximately 1,600 people who came to our Easter egg hunt. And I would say probably 70 to 75% of them were not members of Community Bible Church. And so, yeah, there was some ladies there who had their breasts showing, who had short skirts on, all kinds of things. Hey, listen, I want to win people to Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, I I shook hands with some guy who had, you know, earrings across his eyebrows and one in his tongue. And as I dialogued with him, it was obvious he didn't know the Lord. And I want to I win people like that. So, you know, again, uh, there, there is a line, and everyone has one, whether we want to admit it or, all, it or not. I tell people every church has a dress code. They do? Sure they do. Uh, can you come naked to your church? I doubt it. So you would draw a line somewhere. So the question is, where do you draw the line? Uh, I remember some years ago, a woman who came to our church, and she said, I almost didn't come. I said, why didn't you come? She said, well, because I went to the church up the street, and I was not welcomed. And I haven't been back to church in two years. I said, why were you not welcomed? They said, my dress was too short. Oh, okay, well, look, I'm glad you came. And, you know, in her coming to Community Bible Church, she came in a short dress. And it was less than modest. She found Christ as her Savior. You know what happened? Within a month, her dress length changed. Um, pants, wearing pants are less of an issue today, but 20 years ago, there were some you know, churches in the South, especially where you, you know, if you wore pants, you were, quote-unquote, dressing in men's clothing, and there was a prohibition against that in the book of Leviticus. Well, the prohibition in Leviticus is, is about cross-dressing, what we would call you know, uh, transgender behavior today. Uh, and it's not dealing with pants as such. The pants didn't even exist even after the New Testament was written. They didn't wear pants. That was a point of clothing that came later. Later, Look, some pants can be immodest on some women, just like some dresses can be immodest on women. 
But if you uh, are so hung up when pagans, raw pagans, show up at one of your events that you're going to drive them out uh, and say your behavior is disgusting, then you're never going to win anyone to Christ. And you're not going to see lives change. Listen, we're living in a sensual society. We're living in hardcore paganism, and it's accelerating rapidly. And if you're not prepared to minister in that, and I'm not saying that we should compromise. We won't compromise one bit. So like when we have a vacation Bible school, we um, expect our women to dress appropriately. And we talk about what is appropriate for them to wear when it's, you know, 95, 100 degrees outside. Um, And what's acceptable and what's not is they work with children. And it is sometimes frustrating when, you know, you have an adult Sunday school teacher who's teaching young high school women standards of modesty, and then you have other women in the church who don't model it. But on the other hand, too, we need to be patient with people to help people to grow. Community Bible Church, uh, 60% of the people who join the church in any given year come by conversion. We grow largely by conversion. And so when people join our church, sometimes they bring a lot of baggage with them. Uh, But if you immediately jump all over them, you'll never have an opportunity to either win them if they're lost or to grow them if they're saved. And so wisdom dictates you don't compromise God's truth, but you teach people to the standard. So take your pharisaical comments somewhere else because I'm not interested in hearing them. Let's go to the next All question. Right, very good. A, a caller would like you to explain 1 Peter 5.10 when he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Is this referring to trials we have here on earth or are these trials referring to the end times? Well, uh, no, it's talking about trials that you will face. Uh, the, the whole theme of suffering starts back in the fourth chapter. So let me just give a little definition and context to it. Um, he says, for instance, in chapter 4 and verse 12, by the way, there, there's different kinds of suffering that uh, people face in this world. There's what we call common suffering that happens just by the fact that you're born into a fallen world. So um, last month, both Christians and non-Christians experienced tornadoes in different parts of the country. Uh, People, Christian and non-Christian alike, will get cancers, not because someone's better than someone else. It's just we live in a fallen world, and with that fallenness uh, comes problems. I have a friend who uh, is a pastor in one of the Eastern European countries and would not sign the communist uh, statement to join the Communist Party. Uh, And so the Christians who fell into that category uh, were mistreated. And he experienced a different kind of suffering called Christian suffering. Uh, Christian suffering is when you suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so because he would not become a member of the Communist Party, because to do so you basically had to say there was no God. When uh, he and his friends served uh, in Eastern Europe, under the USSR, they were given the the vilest of jobs. In fact, um, I remember him telling me he and about 10 other pastors were given this job of shoveling some kind of material. And for most of the pastors, their teeth fell out and their hair fell out. He lost half his teeth uh, because he 
took this stance that he was going to obey men and respect government, but he was going to obey God over men, and it meant persecution. So Peter will speak of Christian suffering. He'll also speak of carnal suffering, which is suffering that we bring upon ourselves for our own sin. Uh, There's suffering that Christians know because uh, they, um, you know, disobey the word of God. So he says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of Uh, glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. Uh, That's what he's talking about when we might call carnal suffering. And there are Christians who have stolen and they've suffered because of it. Uh, They've done evil and they've suffered because of it or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God for It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He says, and if with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Uh, 1 Peter 4.18 is a quotation from the book of, of Proverbs. When he says it's with difficulty the righteous is saved, he's not saying, well, God's up there in heaven struggling, trying to keep us, uh, you know, secure in his will. He, he's talking about persecution that comes on the church because they're living a godly life. And, it, and if we suffer, it's with difficulty that we walk through this whole plan, uh, planned relationship that God has for us. What's going to be the outcome of pagans who especially bring the suffering, the godless man who who persecutes God's people? Paul deals with that himself and Second Thessalonians, when he says, God's going to deal out retribution to those who are dealing it out to you. Uh, therefore, he says, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing what's right. And so it's in that context that he's given this message. And so he says, and after in chapter five, where you're asking me about, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all comfort, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So suffering for the Christian is not wasted. Uh, We're rewarded for it in the end, which is why Jesus could say, "You're, you're blessed when men revile you and say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of me. Great is your reward in heaven. Um, so there's reward in heaven and there's, um, there's character that's built here on the earth. Now, this whole theme of suffering, uh, you won't find on TV uh, with some of these guys who want to fill auditoriums with a softened message that is less than true and accurate. And of course, their message is so uh, ear tickling, you, you probably won't suffer if you uh, espouse to it and preach it because it's offensive to absolutely no one. But if you teach the truth and you live the truth, the more godless the day, uh, the more opposition you're going to know and experience. Let's go to the next one. Indeed, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has this person who uh, says, um, in Matthew 28, what is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Is it Jesus Christ? 
Um, it's a good question. Uh, in fact, it's a marvelous verse that really teaches the triunity of God. Uh, the Lord Jesus, of course, is um, dealing, it says the 11 proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had, had designated. And it's in that context, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, we're to go and to preach the gospel. Uh, that's what it means to make a disciple. He's talking about make converts. Earlier in the book of Matthew, he said, listen, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Just go to the house of Israel. Uh, why? Because God was a, is and has always been a promise-keeping God. And God wanted to underscore, no, I had promised a kingdom uh, to Israel. And uh, I went and delivered that message. But because of their rejection, God says, okay, now you can go to all nations, all peoples, make disciples of all nations. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, please note, it doesn't say in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the names singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Bible teaches the triunity of God. Christians do not believe that there is three gods that we worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Uh, God is one, the New Testament also affirms. So the Bible does not teach three gods. It teaches that there is one God. It does not teach that there are three mo modes. Uh, a certain segment of Pentecostals, uh, they're called oneness Pentecostals. They teach modalism. T.D. Uh, Jakes is probably uh, the most famous who would fall into this category today, where he's denied the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, well, the Father becomes the Son at different times. And then the son becomes the spirit and then the spirit becomes the father. And so he teaches that God takes on different modes at different times. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is co-equal and co-eternal. Uh, even in Romans, we were talking about recently what true prayer is and how it's uh, to the father through the son. Paul will say in other places in the spirit, um, you can't, subjugate and cut God up into different pieces. He is one God. And really in the baptismal formula, we're affirming the triunity of God, three co-equal, co-eternal persons. There was never a time when the son didn't exist. There was a time when he didn't have a human body, which we celebrate at Christmas, his incarnation, but he is the eternal son of God. And so it's quite appropriate when someone is baptized uh, to really baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because again, God is one. And each member of the Trinity is involved in the process of salvation. Uh, the Father decreed the plan. Uh, the Son uh, procured the plan. He was the one who actually literally physically died on the cross and experienced the physical and spiritual death that we should know. And the Spirit of God applies it. He's the one who draws us to the Father. He's the one who opens our eyes to the truth and gives us understanding to the wonder of the gospel. And again, you, you, you really can't separate God. Um, you know, for instance, we were just uh, talking the other day of Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I remember uh, Phil Donahue had a comeback a few years ago. He had been off the air as a national talk show host, very popular in the 
70s and early early 80s and came back for a short juncture and crashed, I guess, and burned. But he had Dr. Falwell on, and, and I remember him criticizing, yeah, you say God so loved the world, he gave his son. How, how is that the love of God? If he really loved us, why didn't he come and die? Why did he send his son to die? That That doesn't sound like some loving heavenly father. It sounds like some wicked, evil God. Well, again, he has a distorted view of God. Pray for him that he might find Christ and find salvation. But, um, you know, the father and the son are so inseparable that in the father giving of his son, he gives of himself. You you can't cut God up Um, in the creation of the world. Who created the world? Well, in the beginning, God created. We say the father created. Um, yet the New Testament affirms all things were created through the Son. Uh, yet the book of Job in the early verses of Genesis talk about the Spirit uh, working and being involved in creation. So God is one, and you can't separate him any more than you can separate time. There's past time, there's present time, there's future, future time. The, time. the past is not the present, the present is not the future, the future is not the past. But you cannot have one without the other. They are distinct, and yet they are inseparable. Same with spatial relationships. There's height, depth, and width. The height is not the depth. The depth is not the width. They are distinctly different. Um, They're not the same. So anyway, I hope that helps. And so when we talk about the name, what is the name? The name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, He doesn't have some other name in mind, but it is singular because he's affirming the triunity of God. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Guy from Beaufort uh, writes, in 1 Kings 22, verses 21 to 22, who is the spirit who is going to entice Ahab to go to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? The spirit says he'll be a deceiving spirit. So is this a demon that the Lord commanded to deceive King Ahab's prophets? Or is this similar to how God gave the people over to a depraved mind in Romans 1? It's a great question. Let me uh, just turn there for a moment, and we'll, let's look at this passage together. Remember, this is the time when the kingdom is split. Uh, God uh, told Solomon, because of your moral compromise, I'm going to split the kingdom. But for the sake of your father, David, I won't do it in your lifetime, but I'll do it uh, through your son's lifetime. And so Solomon dies, uh, Rehoboam, his son, Rehoboam, you could say, it comes to the throne. He uh, rules and uh, listens to the foolish young leaders in the kingdom rather than listening to the uh, wisdom of the older, wiser elders of Israel. And the kingdom splits into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Southern kingdom is called Judah, which can be a little confusing because before that, it's all just called Israel. And so you always want to ask, you know, what time frame are we are in Israel's history? And the kingdom is only united under the first three kings, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. They each rule 40 years. So for 120 years, the kingdom is united. And then it's divided for 345 years. And then that division doesn't last. The southern kingdom goes 345 years. The northern kingdom doesn't quite go that long. Um, in either case, uh, so you read of two kings here because we're, we're dealing with the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom. And it came about in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, do you not know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of King Aram? So these two kings get together. Uh, many times they were against each other. 
But these guys got together because if you read, I think it's in Second Kings, I can't remember the chapter, but you discover that um, when this event is looked back upon, um, there was a marriage alliance that took place between these guys. And so uh, Jehoshaphat uh, had married uh, Ahab's daughter, so they were buds, so to speak. And so he says to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, uh, succinctly said, yes, I'll, I'll go. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for the Lord, that is Adonai, will give it into the hand of the king. So if you remember King Ahab, he was the one who uh, confronted Elijah over the drought. And so they had a contest up there on top of Mount Carmel or Carmel, if you prefer. And uh, there was uh, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. Uh, These guys didn't show up. These were 400 different prophets who were not associated with the Asherah or with Baal, but with the Lord. And they said, yeah, go up. It's yours. God's going to give it to you. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? He sensed that maybe um, this message was not from the Lord. So he asked a pertinent question. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat were sitting each on their throne, arrayed in their robes. I mean, what a scene this is. These guys are both on their thrones. You know, it's a war council, so to speak. They're at the threshing floor, the entrance to the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. So you got this prophet Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, who makes horns of iron for himself. And he says, thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the um, Arameans until they are consumed. And what he's actually doing, he's uh, he's taking a, a passage that um, Moses quotes back in Deuteronomy 13, where he talks about one of the northern tribes of Israel, uh, namely the tribe of Joseph having victory. And so he's actually taking a, a portion of scripture that they would have uh, been familiar with where this, uh, th- this horn of theology in imagery is used. And he's in essence quoting scripture to back up his prophecy. And all the prophets who were prophesying with him said, yeah, go up to Ramoth Gilead and you'll prosper for the Lord will give it into your hands. So they sent for Micaiah. Behold, now the words of the prophet are uniformly favorable to the king. The messenger says to Micaiah, please let your word be like the rest of them. Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I will speak. In other words, I don't care what the rest of those guys are saying. I may be a lone ranger, but I'm going to tell you what God says. So when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed. And the Lord will give it to you, uh, give it into the hand of the king. So the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now in the Bible, 
Uh, you cannot hear tone. You, you can't hear tone of voice. Uh, but he's speaking sarcastically, and the king knows it. Uh, it's tongue-in-cheek, so to speak. And it appears that he had done this many times because he had gotten to the point where he was just known for having a different kind of prophecy. I, I was dialoguing with my son last night. He was at Harvard Law School, and um, it's a very uh, liberal class that he's in and some extremely liberal professors. And in one particular class where they're discussing constitutional law, uh, Jeremy's become kind of a, a, a fixture in the room. The professor will say to him, well, what's the Brogy interpretation on this? And Jeremy will give the conservative view in terms of uh, – uh, what he thinks, you know, the Constitution is saying and how a judge should respond. Well, th- this guy had that kind of reputation. He was a fixture for giving a message that was contrary to the popular message. And so now he goes from sarcasm really to a, he's pretty sober. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep, which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house. So he, he basically describes the leadership of Ahab, that it stinks, that he's not a true shepherd of God. The sheep are uh, not being cared for, the people that he is supposed to be in charge with. And, and so uh, he, he says, don't go. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and, and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has proclaimed disaster to you. And, of course, Zedekiah, the really dramatic prophet who's kind of the lead man, he's ripped off. And if you remember, he, he strikes uh, Micaiah on the cheek and he has him thrown into the prison, not just anywhere, but into the inner room. He's in top security, so to speak, and uh, he's punished for preaching the truth. So the question, uh, and, and I know a lot of people may not be familiar with the passage, so I took the time to uh, just walk my, through and I, I needed to hear it again myself. Um, but the question that this gentleman is asking is, um, you know, did, is this similar to Romans one where God lets people go, you know, what's transpiring? Well, let me first say that, um, God can't be charged with deception here in this respect. He was told the truth. I mean, Micaiah, the prophet said, let me tell you really what's going on. And he speaks prophetically from this vision that God gives him. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain like sheep that have no shepherd and they have no master. Don't go out, return to your house. Why? Because it's going to be disastrous. So God doesn't deceive him. He actually tells Ahab the truth. So God is still reaching out to this hardened, evil king. But he doesn't listen. And so he gives then an explanation as to why 400 people can uh, agree and um, give an opposing view. And he said the, the essence behind it all is that there's a deceiving spirit. 
by the way, you know, we're, we're living in a day more and more where if you actually preach the Bible and preach it totally and contextually, that you're going to not necessarily be like this guy, Zedekiah, he quotes the Bible. He's referring to a critical passage in Deuteronomy 33 that Moses recited. So he baptizes his prophecy of good on Israel and Judah using a verse of scripture, but it's totally out of context. And it's not true because he's actually operating under the deception of an evil spirit. So God is the God, even of the devil, uh, Martin Luther used to say, um, The devil is God's devil is how Luther phrased it. The devil is God's devil. What did he mean by that? He he meant that God is sovereign over all, even over the demonic world. And sometimes as as a judgment, God allows, you know, people to believe what's false. That's the ultimate judgment that's going to happen according to 2 Thessalonians 2 during the time of the Great Tribulation because men were unwilling to respond to the truth because they loved their sin so much like Ahab that God will send a deluding spirit upon them that they might believe what's false. And that's what these prophets had done, and that's what Ahab experienced. Anyway, it's sad when God's word is just a, a formality. Oh, yeah, let's, let's bring in, let's hear what God's man says, um, and they don't respond to it. Uh, when when a people reach that point in their culture, they ought to be scared to death because the judgment of God is coming. All right, we've got about a minute and a half. Uh, I wonder if you've got time to do this. Um, the last question we have, are believers from the Old Testament part of the body of Christ? No, they're not. Uh, they're Old Testament saints, and they are distinctly different. I would need some more time to explain that. Maybe we'll pick that up there next time because it's a very, very important question. The church didn't start until the day of Pentecost. There's actually four or five verses you can put together that definitively teach that. that. That's crystal clear. But you do have some people who have the church in the Old Testament. And uh, they make Israel the church of the Old Testament. And then we are the new Israel. And we've supplanted national Israel. And therefore, there's no future for Israel. So, no, they're not a part of the body of Christ. In fact, they're dealt with differently. Um, even at the resurrection. Uh, the rapture is of the church, the body of Christ. Old Testament saints, according to Daniel 12, are not raised until the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So two distinctly different resurrections, all part of the first resurrection program, but two distinctly different resurrections. And even in heaven, I preached a sermon not long ago, what, a he- what is heaven is like, and we, and we looked at even the, the new Jerusalem that someday will come and sit upon the earth, and written are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles are inscribed on the foundation stones as well. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, glad to be with you today. If we didn't get to your question, God willing, next time, hope you have a great day. Lord bless you. 